Since you mentioned picking up a controller, I should probably go there because... <clears throat> because then... Support for this podcast comes from absolutely no one. So what did you say that was again? I forgot. Oh, that's right. Okay. Uh, oh, hi, hi, hi. Uh, this is Pie Factory Podcast. Uh, and um, I'm going to call myself Medium Sean tonight because I have my microphone on medium gain tonight instead of high gain like I usually do. And um, over at the Pie Factory Logistics Center Hello. is the charming and delightful. Oh, Uncle Jim. <laughs> People in Chicago will know <laughs> that one. Uh, by the way, you're medium Sean, so you can, like, talk to dead people? Not that kind of a medium. Oh, uh, because I was going to have you talk to my hopes and dreams. No, I'm more of a magnetic medium. Magnetic medium. So if I touch you, it'll, like, erase you? Hand me over an audio cassette and I can tell you what's on it. Especially if it's labeled. Oh, the fun we have. So, what have you been up to? I've been up to about six foot two. And I've been up to about six foot four. Amazing how that works out, isn't it? So I've noticed, yes. Yeah. I don't remember who it was, but somebody said, yeah, I know how you guys feel about emulation, but if you want to do emulation, well, the thing is, we don't mind emulation at all. We really don't. No. That's how we practice most of the time, actually, because we, you know, we can't always get out to uh, arcades or anywhere else that has video games. We don't always, always have that luxury. I have a slight advantage over you, of course, but... Yeah, you know, it, the fact of the matter is, there was a long time where arcades were just nothing anymore. You couldn't find them. And so emulation was the only way you had to play these games. Yes. And, yes, uh, you know, the, the big publishers were coming out with, with the arcade game packages for the different, you know, platforms or whatever, but all of your minor games, all of your minor classics never got released, and some companies like Nintendo never came out with arcade packages for the PC for you could play the original Donkey Kong or whatever. So, I mean, it was the only thing we, only way we had to, you know, play these games. And the way it is now, uh, we've got arcades popping up everywhere now, but even then, not all of them have, you know, all the games you remember. Right. Even a place with as many games as Galloping Ghost is only scratching the surface of what was available in the classic era. I mean, he's doing a really good job to turn that scratch into a big old freaking gouge. But, oh, yeah, yeah. But you're still going to walk out and say, oh, man, I wish they had this game. Yeah, exactly. And what I, and what I love about the two major arcades we have out here, uh, you know, Galloping Ghost and Underground Retrocade, which has about a quarter of the games that uh, Galloping Ghost has, there's plenty uh, that one has that the other doesn't, no yeah. matter which one it is. Yeah, that is true. But, there's, but still, between the two of them, there's still, there's still a handful that you can say, wow, they don't have this one, they don't have that one. Between the two of them, I pr I'm pretty sure they have all the core classics covered. And oh, then I, would, I would say without a doubt. I would say without a doubt. But it's a lot of the minor classics that are going to be hard to find. And then, of course, there's a bunch of rarities. And, you know, there are sometimes uh, games that not many people are familiar of that you remember from your youth. I mean, there were some games that maybe were big out in the Chicago area here that never hit it, say, in South Florida or Seattle. So, I mean, you've got that, too. I don't think the regional thing was as big of an issue, but I don't doubt that it was was an issue in some cases. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of times that's the only way you can play this stuff even today. So I don't mind yeah. emulation. Not at all. No, neither, neither do I. I have nothing against emulation. Just The only thing, I don't want to emulate things that I actually have. Like, I have an Atari 7800, 
I don't like emulating the 7800 simply because I have the actual thing. I don't want to be bothered with having to find a, to get a copy of Mess or get a find a 7800 emulator and then get the ROMs and everything. Um, that's why I'm really just hurting for the concerto cart to hurry up and be finalized <laughs> and come out, you know, so I could play some of the new homebrews on it. Even if I have the console, I don't mind emulating it just for the fact being is I've got a decent amount of uh, different machines and consoles here, uh, different computers and yeah. consoles. I just don't feel like a lot of times just bringing them out and hooking them up just to, you know, play one or two games and then like go to bed or something. Uh, I only hook them out yeah. if I'm going to go on a real long binge gaming session or if I'm going to have people over, uh, you know, to play games or whatever. But if I'm just want to play a quick game of, say, Atari's Adventure, I'll fire up the emulator. Yeah. And, you know, besides the 7800, which I also use to play Atari 2600 games, of course, I have a year old Atari 600 XL, a Nintendo Entertainment System, and I have that handheld uh, Sega Genesis compatible thingy that uses SD cards. Yeah. You know, so I have a pretty sizable apartment for, for the size of my family, i.e. two plus a dog, <laughs> but I don't have a lot of room. So I don't, so emulation is the thing for me. You know, I don't want more crap accumulating here. So yeah, I'm, in fact, the whole reason, honestly, that I bought my Raspberry Pi is so I could basically emulate off of it. So, you know, mm -hmm. I could play, I could emulate, say, a Commodore 64. I could emulate uh, whatever else have you. Right. Yeah. I, it's, so yeah, emulation we, is going to have all its, for emulation. Emulation has its place. And of course. You know, to each their own. The only time I don't really like emulation is when I'm paying to go to an arcade. That's about the only time I don't like it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you go to the arcade, you expect to play the real thing. Right. And, uh, you know, we're, we, we talked a lot about how, say, you know, what we remember playing uh, when we were in the arcades and how there was a time when we just couldn't find any arcade games at all, which is why we had emulation. And I just wanted to remind everybody that uh, for our last episode of 2015, we would absolutely well actually we always welcome uh listener submissions but we're also welcoming audio submissions for that episode uh, if you listen to the end of our show you'll hear the various methods of contact you can send us your audio files uh if you so wish or if you just prefer the old-fashioned text kind that's fine as well and our deadline will be december 15th there we go get those submissions in so have we ever mentioned like physically mentioned during recording the podcast at all that we tend to approach talking about video games from the point of view of home video gamers. I mean, after all, that's what we've been most of our lives, you know, playing video games at home and getting to the yes, arcade whenever we, we have. Could. We have, okay. But it's worth mentioning, though, regardless, actually. There's a store in Norwich, Illinois. Interesting fact about Norwich, Illinois. Uh, right next to Norwich, Illinois is another town called Harwood Heights. And if that you, is interesting. It is, isn't it? Norwich and Harwood Heights are both completely surrounded by the city of Chicago. So basically, you cannot get to Norwich without crossing Chicago or Harwood Heights, actually. And you can't get through Harwood Heights without crossing Norwich or Chicago. So, And that's it for This Week in Geography. I was about to say something witty, but I couldn't think of a way to end it. I did it for you. But there's a store in Norwich called Video Games Then and Now, formerly Video Games Etc. Long story behind that change. It's a great video game store. They have support for just about every video game system imaginable. There's some systems there that I've never heard of. It's a good, reasonably priced place to get some uh, 
home video gaming stuff. I got a lot of my Atari 7800 stuff from there. Isn't that the place that's run by home video gaming legend uh, Sean Kelly? It is indeed. It is indeed. Uh Uh-huh. I think that's one reason I always got good customer service there, because he once said, hey, I like your name, is when when I gave Uh my credit card uh once. Did he give it back? Um, you know what? I need. I might need to uh, have a talk with him about that. That might explain Uh-oh. a lot. But <laughs> anyway, something kind of well, very angering happened recently. It was uh, the weekend of uh, November fourteenth, fifteenth. A drunk driver drove into the store uh, in the overnight hours. I think Sean wasn't even in the state. I think he was in Texas at a convention or something when it happened. But uh, nobody got hurt, but the drunk driver basically plowed right through the store, tried several times to reverse out of the store, and then just abandoned the vehicle. And apparently this person is a repeat offender with no insurance. Well, I just found out earlier today that the store has already reopened. So Wow. And... What sucks is that I, I went to Underground Retro Kick. Now, people are going to really get confused by this because we actually recorded this over two separate days, several days apart. And during one of the recordings, I was talking about how I was planning to go to Underground Retrocade. And now I literally have, been, I have just got back from Underground Retrocade 30 minutes ago. <laughs> and if I didn't have the deadline of having to come home to record, I would have stopped at Sean Kelly's place and at uh, video games then and now, and hopefully have uh, bought, a, bought a few items. Uh, but anyway, any of you who are in the Chicago area or who plan to visit the Chicago area, uh, head on over to video games then and now. They're in Norwich. They are in Norwich. And this Norwich was just right. They are located on 4351 North Harlem Avenue, so it's uh, just a tad south of Montrose Avenue. And, uh, you know, help them out. Help the store uh, regain some possibly lost funds. It's a really good store. I would be very shocked if you didn't find anything worth buying while you were there. He also sells uh, arcade games, too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the last time I, I noticed that last time I was there, which has been like too long ago. It's been a couple of years, unfortunately. I really need to get back there. But uh, from what I could tell from the pictures he posted, Sean actually posted pictures of the damage. I saw he had a couple of arcade games in that, but I thought those were to play. I didn't know if those were for sale or not. When I was there, they were plugged in and uh, set to free play, if I'm not mistaken, but they are there for sale oh. purposes, though. But I need to get, um, I have a, a a PlayStation 1 that my wife bought me at a garage sale a couple of years ago, and I just haven't gotten around to getting a, uh, a controller for it, so I should see if he's got one. PlayStation 1 was a good console. And I've also been kind of wanting to get a, a Sega Master System again. I had one way back in the Ferg uh, when they first came out, and uh, I loved that system. I had a lot of great games for it, especially Fantasy Zone. If you want a good shooter for a home console, Fantasy Zone on the Sega Master System is awesome. But um, I need to stop in there. I've never stopped in there. When we recorded our Crazy Climber segment, um, I talked about how I couldn't really do much with the NES version. And I finally looked up the manual online, and Crazy Climber for the NES, you need two controllers. I only have one. Ah. So this might be a good excuse to go there. I, I think I know how they have you do it. You hold each one in each, in each hand. You probably hold them uh, vertically and then work it with your thumbs, probably, I would imagine. I think that's how it is. You actually have to rotate the controller. That's weird. <laughs> uh, with Atari, would they've, they've had some home releases of some two 
controller games. Uh, Crazy Climber wasn't one of them. But uh, for the uh, the Atari 52... Stargate Defender 2. Well, uh, but I'm, I'm sorry, I mean like two joystick games. Uh, that they were two joystick in the arcade. Uh, Stargate was not one of those. But uh, for the 5200, they had uh, Space Dungeon, which is an awesome game. I've only seen it in the arcade once. And Robotron, they had a coupler for the 5200 joysticks that you could use for one for move and one for fire. And even the Atari 8-bit home computer version of Robotron had a, a tray where you could sit the two CX-40 Atari 2600 joysticks in them and use them one for move and one for fire. I was wondering about that because when I was at Underground Retrocade, I was actually talking with uh, Scott Lambert about that thing. I said, "Didn't wasn't there something that would couple a, t- a couple of Atari just sticks together?" And he said, "He, he said, yeah, I think so." And one thing, uh, so that's what it and was. You can use two joysticks on the twenty on the seventy eight hundred version of Robotron. We've been talking a lot about Robotron. We haven't even covered that game yet. I know. Uh, the one thing about the seventy eight hundred version of Robotron, maybe we should make that an ongoing theme this week in Robotron. <laughs> There you go. Um, the 7800 version, you can use two joysticks, but they, they never created a coupler for two of the uh, 7800 Proline joysticks. And the Proline joysticks... Are you sure about that? Yes, I'm 100% positive about that. And the 5200 joystick coupler is actually too big to hold the 7800 joysticks. And I remember trying that out a long, long time ago. Uh, back when I actually had a 5200 with the Space Dungeon and the Coupler. Space Dungeon's an awesome game. It's one we should talk about, but I've only ever seen it in the arcade like once or twice, and I don't know if I ever played it. But yeah, I mean, there were there were definitely were ways around that, so. Actually, there is a thread in Atari Age that, uh, whose title is, and I quote, it's official Atari Inc. did create a dual 7800 Proline joystick coupler. No kidding? No kidding. I'll put a link to that in the Definitely. show notes after I, I finish. I did not know they made such a thing. In fact, there's a picture of it here, too, uh, but from uh, Lynx Pro. And, of course, there's also, um, you, you, if those of you who listen to Fill the No Swear Gamer or watch his videos or his podcasts or whatever else have you, he talks about the Ed Ladin controllers a lot, and that's another way you can play uh, dual joystick games on the 7800, actually. Use the, uh, the Ed Ladin uh, twin stick, I think it's called, where it's actually, like, both the left and the right controllers in one piece. It plugs into both controller ports, but it's just one single piece with two joysticks on it. If I had the money right now, I would so get that thing. Oh, by the way, while I was at Underground Retrocade, I upped my Fix-It Felix Jr. score to 49,100. Holy sh! It's not that good a score. The best scores are in the 200,000s. No, I just saw the picture of the thing. I want one of these. Dude! I want one of those. And they're, t- they're talking about creating a 3D print uh, file uh, for it, so you could 3D print one of those. I would do that. Well, this has really gone off topic. Uh, we were talking. It really has, hasn't yes, it? Yes, it has. But, hey, we're good for that, aren't we? We always are good for yeah. that. This is kind of weird because we're only re- we're actually recording this first part, like, mere days after uh, our most recent episode of the podcast was released because of, you know, trying actually, to get around. Actually, mere day. The- yeah, true, true. That's right. The, yeah, the, the, the podcast has only been out for about uh, 36 hours. That is true. It's because we want to get, uh, you know, ahead of the game, what with holiday scheduling and all. Schedule. But I'm going to pronounce it schedule because I'm continental. It's a shout out to our friends over at 10 Pence Arcade, so I'm going to pronounce it schedule. And the last letter of the alphabet? Or are you not going that far for 10 pence? Well, the last letter of the alphabet is Y. I've got my own little way I work that. That makes sense to me, I guess. 
I believe there are 31 letters in the right alphabet. Well, what was the question again? Wow, you really are beyond help, aren't you? It's Monday. Uh, actually, it's Tuesday. It's it's Monday part two, so, <laughs> you know. Part you two. Know. <laughs> Monday part two. Oh, boy. This has been, like, one of the most awkward intros I think we've done in a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you sure you don't want to take over hosting tonight? I got nothing. I pretty much got nothing either, but you know what? All you right, already so, started. Yeah. Might, yeah, you, oh. might as well continue the mess that I started. Might as well. So, uh, the mess started with our discussion of feel, fix it there, and it continues right now. Our mess started with the discussion of fix it Felix Jr. from episode 18. And actually, and, we also got uh, a little bit of feedback about uh, Crazy Climber. Oh? Well, one little bit. You were saying that it's the only. Uh, it's the only arcade oh, game yeah. that has two joysticks. That's uh, I, th- I thought. I didn't say definitely. That is true. But uh, who was it? Uh, Rob O'Hara, I believe it was. Yep. Uh, pointed out to us that there was another game, uh, Kung Fu Master. Or no, wait, was it Kung Fu Master or Karate Champ? I thought it was Karate Champ. Might be Karate Champ. Because I was like, oh, that's the game from uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ah, yes, it's Karate Champ, a game that I actually pretty much don't like. <laughs> I don't like any of those. Those one-on-one type fighting games. I don't think I've found a one that I actually like. And you know what? Phil, the no-swear gamer, who, you know, we pick on a lot, but we we really do truly have the utmost respect for him. In fact, my respect for him is more ut than anybody else's. Oh, mine is most. He recently reviewed Fight Night for the Atari 7800, and I played it for the first time just to uh, follow along with his show. Uh Man, did I hate that thing. It hit me. That these one-on-one combat games, they all started with boxing games, when you think about it. Yeah, I suppose you could go all the way back to 2600 uh, Boxing by Activision, which was a a pretty good game. I actually like that one for for some reason. I don't know why. And uh, I've played a little bit of... uh, Have you played a little bit of uh, real sports boxing on the 2600? No. The only real sports I've played would be football and volleyball. Volleyball, I, that gets really addicting. The, the, the real sports volleyball is really good, and the real sports uh, boxing is actually pretty good. Uh, I have really? to admit, it's not a great game, but for what it is, for what they were able to accomplish on the 2600, that was actually a really, really good game. Yeah, and speaking of uh, able to accomplish, it's like that feedback we got from Michael D'Angelo before said, if you're not restricted to tight deadlines you can do some pretty amazing stuff in the 2600 and if you're a good programmer you can still do stuff with the time limit i still say et is nowhere near the bad game that everybody is uh says it is well not everybody really well true did you hear ferg's episode about et yeah i don't think anybody said yeah this is a bad game Uh, everybody's like this isn't really a bad game there were maybe one or two who said i just don't like it yeah, there were there were some that weren't entirely ringing endorsements, but yeah, I don't think anybody out and out just hated the game. Yeah. So uh, that was the only feedback I had gotten on um, Crazy Climber. You know, you said we got a whole mess on uh, Fix It Felix Jr. Uh, there was one that was sent to us that I got. You must have just gotten all the other ones, and I never saw them. But uh, well, uh, let's hear what John Singletary had to say. Uh, and I love his email address. It's I shouldn't give it out on the air, but it's a no. it's a reference to the arcade game Gyrus. So uh, I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I see that now. <laughs> but uh, he uh, he writes, "Hi guys, big fan. I've been with you since episode one. Go back and listen to episode zero so you can have the whole experience." Well, he I think he deserves our utmost sympathy for that. But All right. 
Uh, yeah. Anywho, at one point, Disneyland or Disney Quest, I'm sorry, in Orlando had at least 20 Fix-It Felix Jr. machines on the premises. So I can assure you at least 20 of them exist. Interestingly, every one of them was scuffed up differently. All had different bumps, bruises, and sticker tears, even when the machines were new. Painstaking authenticity. Okay, first of all, where, I don't even know where I got that, uh, that number of six machines. I think that might just be one of those things that are common knowledge that are neither common nor knowledge. I think that's exactly what that is. And also, I remember what I said before about, you know, how we can maybe steal stuff from no quarter. I think that was part of it, too, because when they covered it, they mentioned, if I remember correctly, Carrington and Mike talked about how there were only like six in existence. He may have. Uh, that's, 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 that's very possible because I was listening after you told me about no quarter way back when. Uh, I started listening to him, and uh, I may have gotten that information from them. But uh, I think this is really cool what he was saying here about the machines, uh, how they were basically uh, what they call in model railroading weathered, so to speak. Uh, how you know each of them had different quirks, I guess you could say, to the cabinets just to make them look like they're older, uh, older machines that have been sitting around about 20, 25 years or so. So that sounds pretty cool. I'd love to see... Uh, <laughs> Love to see one. <laughs> they got one at Underground Retrocade. I need to get up there again. I hate living so far away because for you, it's like a 25, 30 mile drive. For me, it's like a 60, 70 mile drive. But anyway, uh, we're supposed to be talking about Fix It Felix Jr. Fix It Felix Jr. Yeah, so you said you had a whole mess of uh, addenda for that. Well, you already covered one of them. Uh, thank you to uh, Sing for that lovely email. And we had we had some feedback, and from a wonderful source from somebody who has one of the Fix It Felix Junior machines we were talking about. That's uh, Scott Lambert from Underground Retrocade. Ah, Sue. Uh, yeah, he he sent a lot. I'll try to just do a bullet point thing here, so you know, because you know, I mean, yeah, we don't have we don't have I a time limit, but man, I don't want our listeners to have to like spend eight hours downloading our show. If you're given the bullet points, I've got the PowerPoint clicker in my hand, so. Slide one. Okay, slide one. As you can see by this chart, our synergies have outperformed production for the last 25 years. Oh, wait a minute. Wrong PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, get those triangle graphs out of here. What's a triangle graph? I don't know. It sounded real. Ah, uh, here we go. Here's the pie graph. Do you want this one? Okay, yeah, there we go. Okay. We're in Pie Factory Podcast. We use pie graphs. Okay, so anyway... Uh, something Scott offered was uh, how he's, he says, uh, don't recall significant animation limitations noted between the Flash and the arcade versions. That is the C++. Uh, Scott says he's assuming that by C++ we mean the arcade version. He can't really say for sure 100% that that's, that was the actual C++ version. So he's talking about how the Flash version was actually very full-featured, mm -hmm. and it wasn't actually released in the arcade cabinets. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I was playing. I don't know if it was the Flash version or what, but whatever version I was playing online, it sure seemed a heck of a lot different. It was obviously Fix-It Felix Jr. It had the same graphics and sound and everything, but it just felt so clunky mm -hmm. compared to uh, at least what Scott has over there out at uh, Underground Retrocade. And something else, and this also explains the, uh, the seemingly disparate number of... Uh, Fix It Felix Jr.'s listed on arcade.com versus what we thought the number was. Um, turns out that the version of Fix It Felix Jr. that they have at Underground Retrocade is a custom cabinet. It's not an actual Disney cabinet. It's a custom made cabinet. Oh. So, um, and something else that he clarified, I talked about before that I thought that there were some arcade cabinets that had um, 
Felix's voice and Ralph's voice and the nice Landers voices. Mm-hmm. But uh, Scott tells us, uh, to my knowledge, there is no version of the arcade software that has digitized voices. If there are cabinets out there with the voices, they're not running the Disney software or they have embellished that software. Oh, by the way, I did. Uh, I watched the uh, video preview of the uh, Sega Genesis homebrew of Fix-It Felix Jr. Mm-hmm. Whoever did that one actually did put those uh, digitized voices in there. It's really cool. Okay. Oh, and I also talked about how I thought there were different versions of the cabinet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scott here says Disney only created a single version of the cabinet with both jump and fix buttons. The jump button exists to get Felix over the piles of bricks that stack up between windows. Ah. And he says their cabinet utilizes the black button on the player two side for jump due to wiring and button mapping limitations. Interesting. Uh, And he says that if... If you see a, a cabinet that doesn't have a jump button, it wasn't a Disney cabinet. It was more likely a custom cabinet. While I was at Underground Retrocade this last time, when I, for, when I improved my record to 49,100, now I was thinking, okay, now that I know how the machine at Underground Retrocade works and that it actually does have a jump button, a functioning jump button, I can finally get past those parts where the window is surrounded by piles of bricks. Aha! So I use the jump button, and unfortunately, you have to be extremely, extremely perfectly synchronous with moving the joystick and hitting the jump button. Because mm-hmm. if you're not, what's going to happen is it's going to jump and then move or move and then jump instead of jump and move at the same time. And the timing on that uh-huh. very difficult. And in fact, what did me in for my last life was exactly that situation window surrounded by two piles of bricks and i could not time the jump right i just couldn't i even practiced a few times before i actually did it and i couldn't and i ended up walking trying to walk across a pile of bricks and i fell to my death do i still improve my high score and i think i bumped somebody down a rank on the top 10 list so oh well there you go there i go but he goes on i hear again this is where we coming back to what we were saying before i hear only six were made by disney but more than that have been accounted for at various Disney parks. So I don't know of an official number of original Disney cabinets. Many homebrew cabinets have been created mm-hmm. using a graphics package and software readily available on the internet. So fascinating. So that's, that's interesting. That, that, that would, exp- that might explain why that one arcade over in, uh, uh, what was it? Alameda had like four of them, I think. And Scott goes on to say, since Felix was never on arcade hardware, I would question anyone saying they have a MAME ROM of the game. If they indeed have something that works in MAME, it will not be Disney accurate. So, uh, that, and that that's actually something else that I have to addend, and I guess erate would be the verb. I had talked about how I watched a um, YouTube video that seemed to have somebody playing it on MAME. I cannot corroborate that, actually. I might have been incorrect. What happens is if you actually load up the computer, if you download the standalone Fix-It Felix Jr. Mm-hmm. game for your PC and you run it, it actually starts up like an arcade cabinet booting up. And that's probably what threw me off there. That's how authentic they got this thing. They actually made the software actually look like an arcade machine booting up. And let's see. Also, uh, we mentioned that Fix-It Felix Jr. has a kill screen uh, after level 39, I seem to remember. And what Scott says about that is achieving a kill screen is about a four hour investment. Wow. 
Yeah, I think I think that's just about as long as it takes to get a Pac-Man kill screen. Might might be. I I couldn't tell you there, but that's still a long amount of time. Oh yeah. And here I am thinking that like my 15 minute game on Fix It Felix Jr. was for took forever. Good lord. Oh, this is something else interesting. Something God Scott has a lot of great information here. Disney, by the way, is reported to have built Nintendo style cabinets from scratch rather than to convert Donkey Kong style cabinets. You can imagine the uproar from the collector community when the rumor went around that they had been converting Donkey Kongs into Fix-It Felix Juniors. Hmm. And uh, he provided me a Facebook link, actually, to where, like, if you wanted to build your own Fix-It Felix Junior cab, you can actually get uh, uh, all the stuff that's necessary to, I guess, roll your own in a way. Oh, cool. That was interesting. We'll put, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If we remember. Okay, so that's uh, that's what um, Scott had to uh, say about Fix It Fields Jr. So thank you to uh, Scott over at Underground Retrocade. Thanks, Scott. And I believe we got some feedback on Atari Age, too. Yes, uh, Bike Guy Chicago uh, was chiming in about it. But uh, hey, his Atari Age post. Uh, hey, guys, I'm in the middle of listening to the current episode and wanted to clarify a few things regarding Fix It Fields F-I-F Jr., Fix it, Felix, Fe- Fix it, Felix Jr., thank you, based upon my own experiences. Okay, the C++ version is a Windows executable and is the one used in the PCs on the arcade units. The arcade units also feature workstation-class PCs and have their drives encrypted to prevent duplication of the drive's contents. Carrington did a video about the hardware of the machine on YouTube with additional commentary on it during one of the original No Quarter episodes. And there is a link to that in the episode 18 show notes. And I remember him talking, uh, Carrington talking about uh, the encrypted drive on the uh, Fix It Felix Jr. machine, now that I think about it. Uh, don't ask me which episode that was, but he does, ha- uh, Carrington Vanston, formerly of No Quarter, does indeed have a, uh, uh, an, uh, an official Fix It Felix Jr. cab. So that's pretty cool. Uh, continuing with uh, Bike Guy Chicago's post here. Um, an earlier leaked version of the above executable is the basis of most homemade cabinets featuring FIFJ. Fifja. 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 This includes the cabinet at Underground Retrocade and the version installed on my main cabinet. The samples you reference in the podcast aren't included in the leaked version. However, they can be added by adding appropriate MP3 files and applying hacks. So it does sound like it wasn't that they were never, never actually in the game uh, officially. Right. You have to apply a hack to it. Sounds to me like they're never official. Even though it was an early version of the game, the leaked EXE game supports full screenplay when the PC is used in combination with an arcade monitor. It generally operates in a windowed mode when used with an LCD. It will work in full screen with an LCD if the resolution is sexed. Sexed? (laughs) The resolution is sexed. Revolution sex! (laughs) If the resolution... We are not family friendly all the time, folks. It will work in full screen mode with an LCD if the resolution is set to 640 by 480. Uh, one of the major issues of the leaked version is that it does not save the scores. However, a wrapper for the executable was created to help solve this problem. Uh, additionally, there are official Flash, iOS, and Android versions of the game. Each has the same core gameplay, but implementations on each are different enough to make each version unique. Plus, a homebrew port of the game was made for the Genesis and sold as complete inbox in limited quantities. I do not have said port. You were just mentioning the... Uh, the Genesis yes. version there. I have never seen nor played the official arcade version of the game, so I have no means to say what is different between the leaked and official versions of the game. I love the show, and I hope to meet up with you guys sometimes at the re- sometime at the Retrocade, maybe during the next live taping. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Bike Guy Chicago. 
unfortunately, that's not going to be happening because we don't use tape. We, we're all digital. Yeah, sorry. So we're not going to be doing a live taping. Get with it. It's the 21st century. Yeah. We might be doing some live digital recording, though, but no, no tapings. Sorry. Uh, and one other thing he has there. This is going back another episode to our Journey Revolution X episode. Oh. Uh, it seems the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Prince was left off the band singer games list. In 1994, he graced the world with his grandiose opus, uh, whatever the symbol is, interactive. Uh, I believe I still have my copy around here somewhere. Yep, edit. Yep, it is here. It is there. They used Prince instead of the mashup of special characters the purple one suggested using to write his name back in the Days of Wild. <laughs> days of Wild. Days ah, of Wild. I see wow. what he did there. Yeah. So, that is the feedback that we have on FIFJ, fifth gen. Fix it, Felix Jr. We got a lot of good response from that episode. It's only been out like a day. And, you know, thanks a yeah. lot, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, it's only been out a day. Uh, we might add some more later on if we get some more that we have not known anything about. Uh, of course. So going back to that thing about how there are different flavors of Fix It Felix Jr. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, something that I said in our previous episode was that I kind of regretted deleting Fix It Felix Jr. off my iPhone well, it turns out I can still get it. I was actually able to re-download it, reinstall it and everything. I gotta say, though, it was noticeably different from the quote-unquote arcade version. Because what you would play in the arcade for Fix-It Felix Jr., if you're lucky enough to have an arcade nearby that has a Fix-It Felix Jr., like uh, I am, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what happens is you clear two levels and then bet you're done with the building and then Ralph gets tossed off the building. Now, the version that's out on iOS, it's a little bit different in that the building never ends. You just keep going up and up and up and up. Really? And basically, you, two, you, you clear the level, you go up to, the, to level two, clear that, level three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it just keeps going like that. I don't think I like this variation. <laughs> um, yeah, that doesn't sound very fun, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it could be if you didn't already know what the other version was like. It could. Right. Yeah, yeah. We also got an email from Kurt Musgrave. Uh, he says, guys, first of all, from a fellow Chicago area, grew up in Sh- grew up in Schaumburg, but don't hold it against me. <laughs> anyway, he says, first of all, hello from a Chicago area guy. Awesome show. Well, thank you, uh, Kurt. Thank you very much. Awesome show. Great job. I've been listening to you guys since episode zero. And you're still listening? He's still listening. That, that goes wow. even further back from the guy who said he's only he's been listening to us since episode one um, and wow. have enjoyed every minute of it. He must have just been listening to the uh, the three seconds of uh, dead space we put in the beginning for Stitcher. It is also good to hear you all talk about locations you visit with which I am at least vaguely familiar, but really Portillo's Portillo's. You know, Portillo's. I, yeah, I, I noticed that weird pronunciation you did, by the way, uh, Jimmy G, but uh I think it would actually be Portillo's if that would be the case. But I don't I, know. We've always called it Portillo's. I've always Portillo's. called it Portillo's. But, you, uh, you know what? I think I, now that I think about it, I think I actually use both pronunciations Portillo's, Portillo's. It depends on my mood. But I, for some reason, I tend to. I grew up in a, in a neighborhood. We had, we had some, uh, some neighbors who were from uh, immigrants from Mexico. And so I adopted a little bit of their accent and a few things. And one of them is Portillo's. But you're right, it would be Portillo's then, because two L's is a Y. And two Y's is a, well, just because. Uh, Yes, it is. Oh, yes, I'm going to continue. Anyway, pronunciation differences aside, when I heard you talking about the Fix-It Felix Jr. world record, 
I was reminded of the video below. This was a spoof put out around the time Wreck-It Ralph movie came out to spoof the whole 80s arcade high score craze. Pretty good. Enjoy and keep up the great work. Uh, unfortunately, since this is a video and it doesn't really translate that much to uh, uh, us talking about it, I'm just going to put the link in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to put it in our YouTube channel, actually. It's probably the easiest thing to do, and I'll put the link to our YouTube channel in uh, the show notes. Anyway, Kurt, thank you for the, uh, for the contribution, and thanks for the kind words. So, uh, but hey, you know, keep the letters. Oh, we get letters. Well, not really. But to keep those emails and comments coming, you can reach us at our email address, which is at the end of the show, but, or you can find us on Atari Age in the uh, Gaming Publications and Website Forum, or you can, uh, you know, find us on Facebook if you would like. And if you wouldn't like, you can still find us there. You know. That's right. We're nothing if not bizarre. So, that, that there is you go. true. I have one more addendum that I want to add in here. I Uh-oh. forgot to mention last episode. Uh, we had mentioned uh, Revolution X. You know, as much as I hate that game, something that I really absolutely love about Revolution X is when you get what happens when you go into the elevator. Love in an elevator. Yeah, all the descriptions say here a Muzak version of Love in an Elevator. Now, here's something that kind of crossed my mind. I didn't really find that to be very Muzak-y. It was like, you know, typical elevator music. You know, it's kind of like Bossa Nova-y uh-huh. with a lot of flutes and stuff. But this one was like very fully orchestrated and something about it hit me. I was like, okay, there's something about this. And after about a day, it occurred to me what was hitting me about that orchestral version of Love in an Elevator. Yes. It's basically Beth by Kiss, if you really think about it. Listen to to the regular studio version of Beth by Kiss off of their amazing 1976 album Destroyer, one of my favorite albums of all time, by the way. And then listen to, uh, like, just go on YouTube if you don't feel like playing your way through it. Just go to YouTube and why, and do a search for a Revolution X elevator video, and you'll see exactly what I mean. It's pretty much the same the same arrangement. You know what? I am not listening to either of those right now, but yet running them through my head, I can hear it. Da 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 da. Loving an elevator, Beth. I hear you calling. I'm not saying that the songs themselves are like. I'm saying that the but that part, that particular part, yeah, that particular. Yeah, you know what? I could see that. Yeah, just listen to them back Whoa. to back. It's like, oh, I see what they did there. <laughs> Real slick. <laughs> uh, we need to have t-shirts made with the phrase, I see what you did there, even though it's not an original Pie Factory podcast phrase. So we need to come up with our own catchphrase. Yeah, we do. We, we really do. Um, man, yeah, we need to do a lot of things. We also need to get some support, because you may have heard our booth announcer at the beginning of the show say that, you know, we get support from absolutely nobody. Um, I think what she meant was monetary support, which we don't get. We get a lot of other kinds of support. We've had uh, some good friends who've like been morally supportive since episode zero, literally. And we do appreciate it. But, uh, you know, we hope to be uh, coming up with other ways that you can support us uh, in the not too distant future. So, anywho. So, I think after all of that valuable feedback, and I'm not meaning to sound sarcastic or anything. It's just, I just like. I just, I'm not meaning to sound snooty. Well, I am meaning to sound snooty, but I just, I'm not, I don't have the snooty attitude. I just like that snooty voice. You know what I'm saying? Kind of the, you know, you peasant thing there. And wow, this is awkward again. Uh, so let's just move on to talking about yeah. a game here. And I think we should talk about, uh, let's talk about Pingu. 
And ah, that, Pengo. Ah, Pengo. And that's actually how you pronounce it, Pengo. So we're Pingu. talking about Pengo. Pengo. Uh, this guy, a game released by Sega in September 1982. In 1982. Uh, in this game, you have the cute little penguin named Pengo. How original. And your object is to destroy all these snowbees. Now, how you do that? You're in a maze. And you've got all of these ice blocks in this arena. And there's four walls to the arena. And the way you can, there's two ways you can destroy the snow bees. You can smush them with an ice block. Or if one is against one of the side walls of the arena and you face it and push your action button. And we'll get into the action button here in just a moment. Uh, then it will stun the snow bee and you can walk over it and kill him that way. Now. To control Pengo, first of all, you have a joystick and, as I said, an action button. Uh, the joystick moves four directions, and the action button does a few things. First of all, it'll take an ice block and push it, uh, send it sliding across the maze until it hits um, until it hits another ice block or the side wall. Uh, another thing it will do is say if an ice block is up against the side walls or another ice block, it will destroy the ice block. And then finally, the action button, if you're face if you're against the wall and facing it, and you hit the action button, it will tickle, I guess, <laughs> that whole wall, and anything touching that side wall will be stunned. And once a snow bee is stunned, you can either walk over it to kill the snow bee, or you can still uh, push a ice block against it to kill it that way. Now, there are three other blocks in the maze, and they are diamond blocks. The diamond blocks cannot be destroyed at all. With the diamond blocks, what you can do is if you line them up, you'll get a bunch of bonus points. Now, if you line them up against one of the side walls of the maze, you get 5,000 bonus points. If you line them up somewhere in the middle of the maze, where they're up against uh, some ice blocks, then you get 10,000 bonus points. On the screen, now you do have a bit of a time limit in the game, so to speak. I don't think if you, you get more bonus points, the faster you could clear the maze. Uh, I don't think it will automatically end the level if you take more than a minute. I've never no. taken that long, so I couldn't tell you on that. No, what happens is the timer is just a bonus timer. That's it's all it is. It's just a bonus timer. Okay, that's kind of what I figured. Yeah, it goes by 10-second increments. If you finish the level in under 20 seconds, you get 5,000 points. If you finish between 20 and 29 seconds, you get 2,000. 30 and 39 seconds, you get 1,000. 40 and 49 seconds, 500. If you finish between 50 and 59 seconds, you get, um, I wrote down in my notes 10, but I thought it was 80. I might be wrong. And if you're like me and it, and it takes you more than 60 seconds, which is what I usually do, you don't get a bonus at all. Ah. Oh, one thing I've neglected to mention also about the, uh, the diamond blocks, if you line them up, and it, after it counts down the points, all of the snow bees that are alive on the screen at the time will be stunned. So you can, once again, walk over them oh. or push a snow block into them. So you've got that going for you. Now, I've never been able to line up three diamonds. So that's I've why I sound to, so I've surprised. I've how to do that. I find, for me, the best strategy with those things is to just leave them alone unless it's a maze where they're, like, really, really close to each other or it just looks like it'd just be easy to do. And that's the only time I do it. Sometimes it's worth it. It is possible to do it on every level, but it's just going to take some sort of some sort of doing. So I just don't worry about it unless it looks like it's going to be easy for me to do. 
Another thing is there's only three snow bees on the level at any time that I've been able to see. Uh, I can only get like five, six levels in. And the other snow bees are represented at the top of the screen by little round icons. And you'll see a bunch of them up there. What happens is when you destroy one, hello, crazy phone. When you start a level, it'll put three snow bees on the screen. But it'll also show you some of the ice blocks that are flashing. If you destroy the ice blocks that are flashing, that will kill a snow bee egg. And if you kill a snow bee egg, then that takes it off of the counter at the top of the screen. And that's one less you have to deal with later. My strategy is I generally try to... And you get 500 points. And you do. And I, my strategy is to, I try to go after all of those, as, as many of those as I can first, just so that the level will last shorter. Not always a good strategy, but it's what I do. Every second level, when it's at the screen where it, count, it shows you the bonus for the speed of which you cleared the level, the little, little penguins will come out and do a little dance. It's on the fourth one, uh, they come out to do their dance, and then they shake their bootay at you. That's always... I, the first time I saw that, I just laughed, and I still laugh every time I see the penguins come out and shake their booty. <laughs> it's just funny, I think. Uh, when you clear a level, Pingo will like walk off the screen, and sometimes he'll trip before he leaves the screen. I always thought that was kind of a nice little touch. And um, I believe, in a nutshell, that is the gameplay for Pengo. Previous episode, we were talking about uh, how you could be playing a, uh, say, Robotron in a... We reference Robotron a lot for a game that we've not even talked about on the show yet. This week in Robotron. Say, like, you'd be playing Robotron and at one arcade, and then playing it again at a different arcade, how you might not be playing the actual same game because of different changes that might be made in the ROM. There are a couple of different ROMs for Pingo. One of the differences between some of these ROMs is we first start the game on the older ROM, you have to wait for the maze to be drawn in every level, and it's, it only takes a moment, but it's kind of irritating. But the newest ROM, the maze just appears. It just Yes, appears on the screen. You don't have to wait for it to, don't have to wait for the maze of uh, ice blocks to be drawn at all. But the biggest difference that everybody will notice is the background music is totally different. The newest ROMs actually have an original tune, which is quite a nice tune, and I actually kind of like it. I think it fits the game rather nicely. Whereas the older ROM has a song called Popcorn. I think everybody knows that song. And the artist's name is Hot Butter, as we mentioned in episode zero. As we did. I'm not a fan of the older ROM of this game with the, uh, the waiting to, for the screen to be drawn. And That's the, why uh, you hit F10 and MAME. I've, I've never, I really don't use many of the function keys, except, and, uh, now that I think about it, I guess I do use some of them. But it still doesn't change the music by hitting the F10 key, though. No. And I've, I, I just, like I said, I like the newer music a lot better. And I believe in, uh, ROM sets 2, 3, and 4 all have the, uh, the original music. Now, speaking of which, how familiar are you with the Atari 2600 version? I've got it. Okay. <laughs> I have it, and I'm not a fan. Really? Well, maybe you can answer this, because I was only, I'm only familiar with Pengo playing Popcorn. Really? But, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't, I knew there were other ROMs because, you know, when I do a search for Pengo MAME ROMs, there are like four of them, I think. Uh-huh. And I played uh, the 2600 version of Pengo for a while before we started recording. And first thing that I noticed was the music was completely different. Is the 2600 version the same music as in the revised arcade version? Yes. The uh, the 2600 does take the music 
of the newer ROMs. I'm almost wondering if the reason why the music is different in the newer ROMs versus the older one was because of copyright issues, because popcorn... I bet you it was. I'm, that's what I'm guessing, because popcorn is a copyrighted song, and they would have had to have paid some royalties to use it. So I'm wondering if they got a cease and desist from the lawyers at whatever record company uh, Hot Butter used. So I'm wondering if they did that, and then they just took the opportunity to, like, you know, get rid of the waiting for the screen to draw sort of thing. But the music most everybody knows is the uh, the original tune, which let's just call it the Pingo song. And um, There you go. And the reason I don't like the Atari 2600 version is it seems to me that the blocks are not put up in a maze sort of design. They're just kind of, like, randomly placed. And when you go from level to level, the music, background music, which I love so much, in the arcade version, just drones on and on and on and on in the 2600 version. And between levels, it just doesn't stop. It just keeps playing. So I'm not a fan of the 2600 version. Well, I actually am. I was, it impressed me right away. I think it's mainly just because of the graphics, because I was kind of stunned at how little flicker there is in it. Yeah, that is true. There and isn't was, much flicker. And they flicker. still made it a pretty... I mean, yeah, it's, it's not exactly like the arcade version, but it's still a pretty playable game. I won't say it's not playable, but I, there's just enough flaws in it to make me just, I just, I just, I'm not a huge fan of that version. That having been said, I like the Atari 5200 version, and given the flaws, uh, the problems people have with the 5200 controller, I still, I think the controllers actually work rather well with the 5200 version of Pingo. Well, I mean, 5200 is a more advanced console than the 2600, but uh, I think they just did a bang-up job with that one. I can't remember if Pingo was ever released, actually, on the Atari 8-bits. Um, it was. It was. Okay. I have to get that on cartridge, then. But they're basically the same version, so I would imagine the, uh, the 8-bit imagine. version was just as good as the 5200 version. Now, every console has some, some, some clone of Pingo in some way or another. Maybe not every console, but at least every uh, computer does. I remember I had one for my Atari ST. Uh, name of which is escaping me at the moment, uh, which was a, a pretty uh, straightforward clone of Pengo. And I seem to remember there was a clone for it on the Amiga, too. There probably was. Uh, clones of mainstream arcade games were fairly popular on the, uh, the 16-bit oh, yeah. computers. I mean, I'm sure they were on the 8-bits, but I had a Coleco Adam 8-bit computer, so... <laughs> like we got much in the way of software. Oh, and apparently the Commodore 64 and the Sega Game Gear also had Pengo. The Game Gear had it. Which kind of makes sense because it's Sega and, um, you know, Sega made the Game Gear, Sega made Pengo. Now, you know, talking about Sega here, they had the Sega Master System, and I am really shocked at how few of Sega's classic games actually made it to the Sega Master System. Yeah. I mean, they had some of their, their, their Tier 2 games, uh, like Quartet and uh, what's that one that I really love? Fantasy Zone. Uh, they had some of their more modern ones like Space Harrier and Afterburner, but their classics like Pingo and uh, Zaxxon and uh, Taxcan and, uh, oh gosh, what's the other one? Spa uh, Space Fury. Was that one Sega? I think it was. I'd have to double check that. I don't know. But at least Taxcan Zac uh, and Zaxxon and uh, Pingo, uh, oh, and Turbo were all... Uh, were all classic Sega arcade games, and not a single one of those made it in their arcade form to the Sega Master System, and I've always been wondering why that was. There was a version of Congo Bongo on the Sega SG-1... Wait, not, was it SG-1000? I believe so, which was actually uh, a console released in Japan, which was a step below the Sega Master System. Uh, but 
I don't know why they didn't do that, because I think you would have been able to sell a lot of consoles with a nice, good port of Zaxxon on the Sega Master System. And I'm sure it had nothing to do with licensing, because they were the creators of it. Now, they did have right. Zaxxon 3D. Well, they weren't the creators. They were the distributors. The creators were Coreland, originally named Hoi Sangyo Lit Company Limited. Ah. Uh, they were founded in April 1977. In 1982, they renamed themselves Coreland, and uh, they were contracted by Sega. Ah. And by the way, Coreland is now known as Ben Presto Company Limited. Uh, they're primarily a toy company. Ah. I did not know that. So I'm wondering if maybe it was a licensing issue then, why those titles didn't appear on the Sega Master System. It might have been. But what's interesting, though, is that the Mega Drive had a new version of Pengo. It was called Pepenga Pengo or something. Really? Yeah. And this is fascinating. This is something I'm getting from an anonymous source. Uh-oh. Uh, you know, I, they, they asked me not to reveal uh, the name. Uh, apparently, about five years ago, there was a widescreen version that was made. I don't know if it was ever released or if it was released yet, but I think it was tested in several places. It's a, an eight-player multiplayer version of Really? Pango. Oh, that yeah. sounds like fun. Oh, yeah. I have to check that out. What was the name of that one? My source does not give me an actual name for it. Well, here's what my source is saying. Um, let's see. They announced, they announced a widescreen remake, which is what I've been talking about. A second location test took place at Sega Shinjuku Nishiguchi uh, between May 12th and 13th of 2012. During the third location test at Club Sega, Akibara Shinkan, between July 14th and 16th, 2012, as part of the four-game compilation title called Jessen Love, or Gessen Love, plus Pengo, where the game was made available as a download by Ring Edge 2 machines through Sega's new all.net PRAS multi-game network. What, what the hell is this crap? <laughs> it was later released September 20th, 2012, and the compilation title is included with the Xbox 360 game Guessin' Love plus Pengo. <laughs> That's according to my anonymous source. Your anonymous source, huh? Yeah. Well, there you are. Or whatever the fox's name is. See what <laughs> I did there? I see what you did there. So... What do you think of the game? You know, I'm going to tell you, at first, I didn't like it. It used to frustrate me because... First of all, I thought, so, okay, so you push blocks of ice into your enemies. Uh -huh. Big deal. Thing is, though, I was going by my Starcade knowledge, like all that I saw in Starcade. If you remember Starcade correctly, the games didn't last long. They timed you at like a minute, and then the game was over, so you never did get to see a lot. But after, you know, learning more about the game, which sadly I only learned more about it in the last couple of years, I'm realizing there's a lot more to this game than meets the eye. Because there's all kinds of strategy, there's different ways to score the points, you know, lining up the diamond blocks, pecking away at the ice, pecking away at the ice that has snowby eggs in it. Pengo did have a sequel as well, there was a Pengo 2. There was? There was. I've never actually played it, but I know where you can find it. Okay. At level 257. I don't remember if I had mentioned this about level 257, but one thing that I really, really loved about level 257 is that all over the place there, they have basically like restaurant tables and bar tables uh -huh. with arcade games embedded in the tabletops. Uh -huh. 
they're not quite cocktail table style cabinets. They're actual. They're actually embedded in the bar tops. Okay. And one of them has a Pengo and Pengo 2 installed in it. Really? Pengo 2? Pengo 2. Electric Boogaloo. Fascinating. I've never heard of a Pengo 2. Yeah, I'll put a picture of it in the show notes. Yes, please do. That is strange. But there is a Pengo 2 that is in existence. Huh. Interesting. I'll have to take a look at that sometime. Continuing on, you are saying that uh, you didn't like the game at first. It was partly because it. I thought that there wasn't as much to it as there actually is, and also I just plain sucked at it, and I still suck at it, really, but I don't suck as badly as I used to. I've always had a kind of a soft spark, spark? <laughs> a soft spot in my heart for this game. Uh, I remember the first time I played it, I just... Actually, I had seen a review of this game, first of all, in... Um, like an arcade preview in, I believe it was Video Games Magazine uh, way back in the 80s. And um, they listed Pengo as a arcade miss. And their description was something like, dumb penguin pushes ice blocks into stupid looking snow bees. And I'm like, well, that's not a very, chari- <laughs> <laughs> not a very charitable review. But uh, I uh, found it at the local Putt-Putt Golf and Games for the very first time. And I think that's the only arcade in the area where I actually saw it. I don't recall seeing it at Aladdin's Castle. So I played it, and I'm like, wow, this is quite the fun game, and uh, I'm okay at it. I can get to, like, the fifth level. Uh, I don't think I can get much further than that, but uh, I like seeing the uh, the penguins shake their booty on the second intermission. And uh, there, I guess there's a total of six different intermissions, by the way. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of enjoy this one, and I've gotten to the point where I feel brave enough to, you know, push the diamond blocks to get the big bonus points there. Uh, something interesting. When I was playing this game for the show, I played through all of the different ROM sets just to find any differences. And, and other than the maze drawing and the uh, background music, there wasn't much di- many differences. But again, going back to what we were talking about, about different machines might be the same game, but you're not playing the same code. Something interesting happened when I played Variation 3 of Pengo, and I've never seen this ever happen anywhere before. I don't remember exactly what I did. I I pushed an ice block, then I walked all the way to the top of the screen. And there was a snow bee coming after me. I tickled the top border of the arena, and uh, the snow bee that was chasing me, he was to my right, he froze, but he didn't like... When you freeze when you freeze a snow bee, when you stun a snow bee, it will cycle colors from, like, whatever its main color is to blue or whatever, so that you know that it's safe to walk over. He wasn't cycling color, but he just stayed there, and he didn't actually look smashed. He actually looked like a snow bee. He was just stuck there. And hmm. I, for some reason, walked into him, and then a snow bee went off the top of the screen, and then the game just froze. There, there was part of the snow bee at the top of the screen and part at the bottom. And the game just froze there. I've never had that actual happen to me during an arcade game before. And that was, I believe, was it the second or the third ROM variation? It might have been the second one. I never had any problems with bugs or anything on any of the other versions. And I just thought that was interesting. I should have gotten a screenshot of that because it was a toe totally bizarre but uh that's a you know a freak occurrence again you might not be playing the same code if you have a pingo machine you know at the arcade by your house versus the one all the way on the other side of the city they could be this, the same game you could be playing a bug fixed version across town whereas the version you're playing doesn't matter what game it is might have a bazillion bugs in it so i just thought that that was really really weird but um yeah like i said i love i like this game it's it's a fun game I don't go out of my way to play it, but uh, oh, right, yeah. 
But uh, I like it. It's just a, it's just a good, solid game. Is it a classic? I'd say it's a minor classic. Is it core? I'll put it to you that way. I don't think it's a core classic. Uh, I would say it's uh, just slightly below a core classic. Like second-tier core. A second-tier core, exactly. And uh, as long as we're talking about it, uh, I, might as well, uh, I might as well give my rating now. Um, I, I, I give this like four continues. I totally agree with that. I also give it four continues yeah. as well. It's a, it's a fun game. It's a cute game. My kids enjoy watching the penguins. <laughs> Who doesn't love penguins? Except for the, the Cleveland Zoo. That was, went to Cleveland over the summer. No, 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 no! And uh, the Cleveland Zoo, we got free tickets to it. They were advertising this great penguin exhibit. And if you, I don't know if you've ever been to the Cleveland Zoo, but it's in a river valley. No. And, and the zoo is a long freaking walk between exhibits. And so you're getting all the way over to the other side of the zoo, which is probably about a third to maybe half of a mile from the entrance. There's nothing between there and, and the entrance. You get to the exhibit, and it's like a fishbowl with like three penguins in it, literally. And they're like making this whole big deal out of all over all the media that they've got all these penguins. And you get there, and there's only three penguins. And I'm like, really? I'm glad we didn't pay to get into the zoo. So yeah, it was a major downer. Anyway, back to the uh, to the to back to our show. Back to the show. Uh, so yeah, four yes, continues. We we like to talk about our memories of these games uh, here on Pie Factory Podcast. I got full disclosure here. Um, this is uh, the, the folks at classicarcadegaming.com uh, will love this one. Uh oh. I never played this until about two years ago, really. Well, I never, okay, I never played the actual arcade cabinet until the last couple of years. I saw the game on Starcade. I knew what it was all about. I've played at least two or three different home versions over the years. I played the 2600 version. I've played the, in fact, I used to own the exact same Pengo cart that you have on the 5200. <laughs> I played the, the Amiga version. You know, I've played plenty of home versions of it. I just never had a chance to play the arcade version until, you know, now as a, as an adult, <laughs> you know, back in the Ferg when I was a youngster, again, with my $1 allowance at the arcade, that was four games. I had to be extremely selective about how I invest those four tokens and Pengo never made the cut. Mm-hmm. I bet, yeah, I imagine if you had only a limited amount, you'd want to play the stuff that everybody else is playing because you know, you know, from what everyone else is saying, hey, this is a good game. And I can see where you would pass over Pengo. But you know what? Pengo's a beautiful game. I mean, it's for the era in which it is it was made. It's got nice, colorful, cartoony graphics. It's got excellent music, uh, no matter which version you play. But, you know, I can see why people wouldn't play it. The only, the only real disappointing thing I think about Pengo to me is that in the attract mode and in the intermissions, they show different colored penguins. They'll have like a red one, a blue one, a yellow one, a green one, yeah. whatever. And you only play the red one in the game. While we're talking about intermissions, it would be nice to mention the piece of music used during the intermissions. And that would, of course, be Ode to Joy from the famous Beethoven's famous Ninth Symphony. Yes, it's a cute little, uh, cute little arrangement of that, I think. Yeah, it really it really is. It's you know it's really a, this is. is a cute game. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Maybe the Snowbees could have been designed a little bit differently because they don't I don't think the Snowbees have a ton of personality, but they're not horrible either. Speaking of Snowbees, did we talk about how many points you get for crushing the Snowbees? Why no we didn't. Crush one Snowbee at a time, you get 400 points each. You crush two at a time, you get 1,600 points. Three at a time, you get 3,200. Four at a time, so yeah, you can have four oh, Snowbees on, on the screen. screen. Yeah, okay. You get 6,400. 
Yeah. And like noticing the, how like it's all multiplied by two, kind of like how chomping a, a monster in Pac-Man is, is the same kind of pattern. In fact, there, there are a lot of Pac-Man similarities in this game because you, know, you have that, you have uh, the intermissions. Okay, so we have two similarities. Two similarities. Two similarities. Uh, uh, let's talk about uh, people who have scored pretty highly on this game. Eh, I'll probably score, but not you. <laughs> Shut up, Fright Knocker. <laughs> I'm going to score too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I get some sluts. Hey, I have so many uh, sluts, you won't know where to begin. Wow, I did uh, actually a pretty good Cloris Leachman impersonation there. <laughs> According to Arcade.com, Arcade.com adjudicates based on dip switches set for three pangos with a bonus pango at 30,000. Yeah, that's, by the way, um, I never did get a bonus pango ever. I don't think I've ever gotten <laughs> one either now that I think about it. <laughs> That's kind of a high, so, uh, a high point total to get an extra life. Yeah, but according to uh, Arcade.com, Robert McCauley scored 432,780 uh, during the 16th Annual Classics Championship at Fun Spot. He performed that score. He achieved that score on May 28, 2014. According to Twin Galaxies, now Twin Galaxies does their adjudication based on the dip switches set to five pangos, but also a bonus at 30,000. Paul Hornitsky scored 1,217,650, which was verified on September 9th, 2012. As for me, all right, are you sitting down? I am sitting down. Do you want me to stand? I'm going to put Paul and Robert to shame right here. My highest score performed at the Underground Retrocade just a little bit over a month ago, October 11th, 2015, <laughs> 12,290. Well, just, I don't know what my all-time high score is, but uh, when I was playing it this afternoon, I scored 20,660 points. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I've scored higher in MAME since last October, but I don't think I've broken the 20,000 mark yet. I know I've done it more than once, but... Uh, you know, I never, I, I rarely keep track of my scores. <laughs> I probably shouldn't. I, I shouldn't keep track of my scores because most of the time I just get sad. Well, but you know what? Oh, well. As I said before, I just pretty much just play games for fun. I, I, if, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if I get a high score, fun. you know, all the better. I'll take the t-shirt and I'll wear it proudly. But uh, yeah, I just play for fun. And if I had fun, well, then that's money well spent. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Uh, do we have anything further to add about Pengu? I don't believe we do. Okay, then I guess we should talk about our second game. Uh, ah, Ladybug. Ah, Ladybug. Oh, you already said Ah, Ladybug, didn't you? Well, anyway. Well, that's, well t um, that should be your line anyway. You're the one who always did yeah. the Ah. Ah, Ladybug. Papa, yeah. So, being a Ladybug automatically makes me a girl. Is that it, Flyboy? Huh? Yikes! She's a guy! Ah, Ladybug. Um, yeah, Ladybug. Um... In Ladybug, you control a ladybug. Fair enough. And you're in a maze. And you have to eat all of these items in the maze. Sounds familiar. <laughs> no, this isn't Pac-Man. Uh, the hell you say? <laughs> yes, I say. Uh, what you gotta do is eat all of their... They're like little X's in the maze. I don't know what they call them in any of the instructions or anything. But you have to eat all of the... All the X's in the maze to get to the next screen. Oh, those those X's are flowers, by the way. Oh, those are flowers. I did not know that. 
That must be a postmodern interpretation of a flower, I guess. Well, the anonymous source I'm looking at has flowers in quotation marks. Ah, quotation marked flowers. I see. So there are so, flowers. Uh, each maze has a different enemy. Uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what they are, but uh, I was playing it a while ago, and I noticed there's four, possibly five different enemies. Uh, after about the fifth screen, they all appear on the, you know, in the screen at one time. What that makes this game a little bit different, there is, first of all, there are no power pellets in the maze that will make the enemies turn a different color so that you can eat them. What you do have, instead of power pellets in this game to destroy your enemy, uh, there are little skulls all scattered throughout the maze. In the early levels, you get three. Later, later levels, you get four. What you do is you have to trick the enemies into running into the skull, and they will die and go back to the middle of the screen. Another difference between that and a power pellet from Pac-Man is if you run into the skull, you will die. You have to trick the enemy into running into those. As I said, there are three in the early mazes, four in later ones. I don't know if they go any later than that. I actually cheated on this earlier to see how far I could get and get some of the bonuses, which we'll talk about in a moment here. The other thing that differs this from Pac-Man, and what really makes this a fun game uh, that stands on its own, is there are doors. There are swinging doors everywhere, and you can really alter the shape of the maze. All you have to do is push against the door, and it will rotate uh, 90 degrees. Push on it again, it will rotate another 90. I believe they're officially referred to as turnstiles. It might be wrong, though. I can see where they would be called turnstiles. I wonder if they were supposed to be doors, but because of the primitive graphics, they look, they're like, you know what? It looks more like turnstiles. Let's make it look a little bit better. Call it turnstiles. Yeah. Well, you know <laughs> what? Hey, semantics again. The turnstiles create some interesting bits of strategy. You could have a a monster chasing you, and then you hit one of those doors, and if you can do it at just the right amount of speed, if you can do it just a little bit before them, you can actually block them off and make them try to take the long way around to get you. Uh, one thing I noticed, I, I was wondering if this was a thing, if there was any areas in the game where you could close the doors in such a way to where it could create a box where you could box yourself in if you wanted to go, like, I don't know, go uh, get something to drink or use the tinkle pit. I was wondering it, it, that it, myself, kind of like how we didn't mention it during our Pac-Man double episode, but there is a safety zone in Pac-Man where assuming you get uh -huh. in there and the monsters aren't looking in your direction, they won't find you. And people have gone like 15 minutes without being bothered. And I think there's one of those in Ms. Pac-Man too, but I could be wrong. I was playing earlier just to see if there were any sort of like little things like that. And I could not find anywhere. It doesn't appear. I couldn't either. That doesn't appear that the actual basic shape of the maze changes. No, uh, the maze is actually so. the same, and the doors are always in the same place. But the, just the fact that you can rotate the doors makes really every second of the game a different maze, a different use, you know, different strategies and all on all that sort of thing. So that's kind of cool. As with other games from this was uh, Universal, uh, just like Mister Do was. Or Mr. Phil was. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta stop picking um, on him. <laughs> nah, Before he's, he he's good us. with it. Hey, we never stopped picking on Ferg. Why should we stop picking on Phil? Yeah. There are bonuses that you can get on this. Now, you know what? Before I go and get into the bonuses, uh, one thing I should say about the monsters. If you, when you play the game, there's uh, like a white dashed, I think it starts out as white dashed line around the perimeter of the play field. And it slowly turns green. And once it turns green all the way around the perimeter of the play field, the game uh, releases an enemy. So you can go a few seconds right at the start of the game with no enemies in the play field. I believe it's after level five 
The screen border will make a sound for each unit it clicks off around the perimeter of the playfield. After level five, it goes faster. And so it actually becomes quite irritating, the sound, but uh, it also it kind of makes the gameplay more frantic, actually, in my opinion, but uh, we'll get to opinions a little bit, but that's uh, something important there. Now, with, there are three different types of bonus items in this, in this game. You have hearts that are in, and all of these are in little circles in the base. The hearts, you have the hearts, which are for bonus. You have the word extra, or letters for the word extra, and you have letters for the word special. They'll all be highlighted at the top of the screen. If you notice, all the letters for the word special are in red, all of them for extra are in yellow, and all of the, the bonus points, I believe it's 2x, 4x, and 8x, are in blue. Now, to get the bonus, to get a letter, or to increase your point multipliers, which is what the uh, 2x, 4x, 8x are, you have to get the specific character from the maze when it turns that color. Now, you have to get all of the hearts when they turn blue. The timer makes these letter and heart tokens in the maze will rotate color from, from red to yellow to blue. You have to get the special ones when the letters that are in special are red. With the ones for extra, you have to get all the letters for extra when they are yellow, and you have to get all of the hearts when they are blue, because they're blue in the maze. Now, all of the tokens change color, so you have to hit the token when it's the correct color that you need. Now, if you're looking for a letter for special, you have to get it when it's red. The color cycle is red, yellow, blue. The tokens only stay red for about one second. When it cycles color to yellow, they stay yellow for about four to five seconds, something like that. And then they will cycle color to blue, and blue will be the longest. Now, if you don't get these to any of the tokens when they're the proper color that you need, you will get bonus points for them, but they won't register for anything at the top of the screen. Now... What do these mean? Uh, as I already mentioned, the hearts will up the point multipliers for that particular board. They do go away at the next screen. The point multipliers do. So each screen, you will have to get them all over again. So the 2x, 4x, 8x. If you get all three of the hearts while they're blue, you'll get eight times points. If you get only two of them when they're blue, you'll get four times. You only get the one, you'll get two times the points. Now, extra. That should be quite obvious. If you get all the letters for extra when they're yellow, you will get an extra life. If you get all the letters for special when they're red, you win a free game. And bonus points. And, oh, and you will get bonus points. Here's the problem. Other than the timing, which to get the red ones, you've really got to be, you got to be kind of like hovering right on them to get them. Oh, yeah. As I said before, there are three skulls early on in the game, increasing to four in the maze at any time later, you know, later on. There are only three hearts in each maze, every maze, and there are only three letters in each maze. So it's going to take you quite a few mazes to get either extra or special. Uh, as I said, I was uh, playing it earlier today with the cheats on, and after level 12, 13, I did not have... I was, for the word special and extra, I was missing two letters for each. And that was kind of pissing me off that I just could not get a maze with the letters that I needed for either word. Obviously, the words special and extra do have a couple of letters in common, E and A. I think it's only E and A now that I think about it. So, you know, you can use those at any time, but quite frequently you'll see more E's and A's than you will other letters just because of that, and that'll, that'll kind of tick you off a little there. But after all of the bugs, all of the enemy bugs, monsters, whatever you want to call them, are in the maze, in the center of the screen will be a bonus item. 
if you get that bonus item, then the things like bamboo shoots, uh, cucumbers, that sort of thing, all the enemies in the maze will stop. That's another defense you have against them. A strategy that I found out is get all of the monsters in the maze. Then what will happen, lure one of the monsters into a skull. Now, he will die. He will regenerate in the center of the maze. And once he leaves the... Wow, is that a, that's a unique concept. You know, killing off an enemy that just regenerates in the center. Kudos to Universal for coming up with that original idea. Yes. Okay. Once all the monsters are out in the maze, grab the bonus item that comes up in the middle. All the monsters will freeze. And once they're frozen, I believe you, I believe you can go through them at that point. I don't remember. I'll have to double check that. <laughs> Which You're means not going to double won't. check nothing. <laughs> I'm not going to double check. Then, after they're unfrozen, lure one of them, one of the monsters, into the skull. He will die, and he will regenerate in the middle, and after the timer around the side of the screen goes back, he will be re-released, and there will be another bonus item. Grab that one, and then do it a second time and a third time if you really want to rack up some points. Now, later in the game, as I said, there will be four skulls, so you can do it four times, but <laughs> things get a heck of a lot faster. The difficulty in this game really ramps up fast after the first few mazes. So if you can pull this trick off at later levels, well, I would say my hat's off to you. Uh, I'm not really wearing a hat right now, but since this is audio, you really don't know that I am or not, do you? Oh, no, I don't. By the way, when you eat a vegetable, the enemies freeze, but they will still kill you if you touch them. Ah, there we go. I was wondering about that because I was actually on cheat just to see how far I could go and check out any differences in the game because, truth be told, I've only ever seen this in the arcade one time. Most of my experiences from the Atari, uh, or not the Atari, the ColecoVision version, and uh, we will be talking more about that later. Yay! Yay! Uh, as far as the game goes, uh, it's, a, it's a very colorful game. Again, like most Universal games, I find Universal games, the screens to be quite crowded. Yeah. Everything does have a function, though. So there's, it's not like there's a bunch of like stuff there that doesn't need to be there. Uh, I don't know of very many games like that, but everything is pretty much instrumental in the game. But then again, with you, most Universal games that I've played, yes, there's a lot of stuff on screen, and yes, you know, it, seems, it seems crowded and all that. Universal games really all do have quite a bit to the gameplay. Even the simpler games like Mr. Do and this one, there's a, really a lot to it, a lot more than the than the average Pac-Man type game, which just seems more clean. Universal games have their own visual style. You know, let's put it at, let's leave it at that. Sound-wise, the sound effects, I like the sound effects, they do their job, but the sound of that timer after level five just gets to be really, really, really irritating. Trust me on this. That's pretty much uh, the game, describing the game in a nutshell. It just has a joystick, you don't need any buttons other than the start one or two player, which now that I think about it, I've always wondered, and this is something, well, maybe I haven't always wondered, but it just came to me now. All games, even the ones that are just a joystick, have, you know, one or two player start buttons on them. Has there ever been an arcade game that did not have that button, but instead used the joystick to select one or two player? I'm talking about a game that only has a joystick. And nothing else. And nothing else, yeah. I don't know. Oh, is this feedback bait? Uh-oh. Uh. <laughs> we don't have clickbait. We've got feedback bait. That's right. That is the game in a nutshell. Help, help. What kind we of a nut would be... Oh, we did? Yes. God dang it. So, Paul, 
Why don't, how about a little ladybug music? Oh, shoot. We did that, too, didn't we? Yeah, we did that like three times already. Ah, uh, we have to hold off on that. That's one of my favorite impersonations of yours. At any rate. No, actually, that wasn't an impersonation. We actually did get Paul Schaefer in here. Because, you know, we're like this. <laughs> I love doing visual cues on an audio podcast. They just work so well. For the record, Jim was doing bunny shadows. Yes. Yes, I was, actually. So, that, yeah, yeah, Paul and... Paul and uh, the two of us, we're we're like we're like basically shadows of bunnies. So, what have ye to say about this game? Well, what have I to say? And you see, and by the way, this is something else. Like, like Jim and I like talked about this offline. Like we were talking about like various aspects of our podcast. And something that I kind of observed is that Jim kind of does the play by play. I do kind of the color commentary. So, and that's kind of what I'm going into right now. Just kind of color commentary. I didn't real I didn't realize this right away that this was a a game by Universal, and it actually makes sense because there's so, a lot of this game has a similar vibe, not necessarily mm-hmm. play, but a similar vibe to say Mister Do, which is another Universal game. There's a whole spelling out of the word extra, which I think um, I think Universal games are the only ones that had you spell out the word extra. Now I know there were other games where they would have you spell out words for, for bonuses. And then, of course, there was an arcade version of Wheel of Fortune, which had you spell out words. <laughs> uh, not really what we're talking about here. But um, I think, yeah, I think Universal is the only one. And I don't know of any other game that actually had you spell out the word special. In fact, I think this might be the only game that does that. Uh, once again, that is listener feedback bait. So <laughs> have at it. And also, the other universal thing about this is, what's the other big universal game? Of course, Mr. Do, which Mm -hmm. is unquestionably, unquestionably influenced by Dig Dug, especially considering when it came out, which I believe was, what, October 1982, and Dig Dug came out in April of 1982, I believe. Something like that, yeah. And, of course, this is obviously influenced by Pac-Man. Ladybug is obviously influenced by Pac-Man. Uh, Ladybug came out in 1981, Pac-Man came out in 1980, so of course there has to be something in there. And what I like about both Mr. Do and Ladybug is that you don't need to know how to play the game. You can kind of use what you know about Dig Dug and apply it to Mr. Do and be able to quickly figure out the various idiosyncrasies of the game. Same thing with Ladybug. You can go in with Pac-Man knowledge and be able to have a um, decent first game and be able to figure out like how it is different from Pac-Man without even needing to read any instructions or watch anybody else play. I would disagree with that because of the way the uh, the, the, the bonuses and the skulls work. Uh, you can easily get the skulls with some trial and error, but unless yeah. you're paying attention to the way the letters work with the, the color cycling and all that, you're not going to pick up on that. You'll, I picked up on it. You'll think you'll run over the, uh, you'll run over the P and you'll think you got it, but then you notice you didn't get it, and you're thinking, well, how the heck did that happen? I, I've i got to pee. We already talked about Tinkle Pit. Oh, yeah, that's right. But I, I, I don't know. I, the basics of the game you will get right away, like the doors. But And then it'll take you a little bit to figure out the, the skulls, but the, the, the bonus items are going to take you a little bit longer to figure that out. Oh, and speaking of bonus items, yeah, we we should talk a little bit more about those. There are a lot of different bonus items. Um, I haven't counted them, but depending on the level, like the fir- your first maze, in your first maze, I know it's not the uh, eggplant, but it's something before eggplant. You get a thousand points for grabbing it, and then every mm-hmm. additional maze, 
you'll get another 500 points added to that bonus. Like the first maze, the the uh, bonus vegetable is 1,000. The second is 1,500, etc. And 500 point increments all the way up to 9,500. Ah. And I believe once you reach 9,500, you keep getting the 9,500 point vegetable, which I believe is horseradish. Horseradish. Unlike with, say, Ms. Pac-Man, which randomizes the bonus afterwards, it's more like, say, Pac-Man or Junior Pac-Man, in which you keep getting the same one after you cycle through all of them. And if you can pull off the trick about, with the, uh, as I was talking about before, with the monsters and the skulls, uh, you could make that pretty lucrative later in the game if you can survive the blazing fast monsters. Oh, yeah. And that's another thing that's similar to uh, with uh, Mr. Do and Ladybug. It's that as you progress... The game gets almost exponentially harder. Like you get, you get outrun so easily. The game gets really hard, really fast. Well, I won't say really fast, but I mean it gets. It has like a, a decent progression for the first five levels, but then it just goes like insane after the fifth level. Yeah, and what's crazy is, and I found this to be true for both Mister Do and for Ladybug, was that as these things got impossibly hard. I found myself thinking, okay, I just lost every single one of my lives on this screen because it got ridiculously hard. But I think I can still get past it. Let me try it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. It has kind of that uh, one more go type feeling with it. Yeah. As I said, my, my main experience with Ladybug has pretty much been on the ColecoVision. As far as I'm aware, we're talking about the ports now. As far as I'm aware, the only official port of Ladybug to a home console was the ColecoVision. And Intellivision. It was on the Intellivision. Yes. I did not know that. Uh, I do know that Coleco did have it in the catalog for the Atari 2600, but it became a famous piece of Coleco um, vaporware. But recently, within the last couple of years, a industrious home brewer created Ladybug for the Atari 2600. And may I say that it is probably the most amazing piece of programming on the 2600 I have seen up until recently when somebody released a 2600 port of the arcade game Scramble, which was amazing. That was recently posted to our Facebook page. For those of you who don't believe in Facebook, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So, but the, yes, the 2600 version of Ladybug is an astounding piece of programming. And the thing I loved most about it is there's a particular forum member of Atari Age, whose name I'm not going to say, who's very, very, very arrogant and very, very oh, few people I like know who, him. I know who you're you know thinking what I'm about. about. Yep. And when the thread was announced that somebody was going to try programming it, he was like, no, you'll never be able to do it. You can't do it. The 2600 can't handle this. Doesn't blah, he blah, say blah, that blah. about Honest. everything? He says that about everything, and, and he's proven wrong every too. damn time. And of course, every single—I kind of wonder if he's there for bait, just for people to like actually do it. Like he's like, okay, I really want to see this happen. Let me make. Let me see if I can make him think it can, just so I can see it happen. I remember I did a a mock-up of what a screenshot for uh, Sinistar on the Atari seventy eight hundred would look like, and he was complaining about the name of the thread that I posted, and I'm like. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we were talking Uh, earlier in the episode about how we have to come up with a catchphrase. I think that's it right there. Shut up. Because I think you've used it on me about eight times already, which I I think means is basically your way of saying, you know what, Sean, you're actually right. But anyway. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but here's someone's name we are going to say because he deserves recognition for this. John W. Shampoo 
I'm guessing it's pronounced. <gasps> he is the gentleman who did the 2600 version of Ladybug in 2006. I think, isn't he the same guy that was behind Champ Games? They released yep. a lot of uh, arcade conversions for the PC. That's the same guy. And they weren't official conversions. They were they were like public domain ones. Oh, that guy's talented. Is he the guy? Is he behind Scramble for the twenty six hundred? I, I think don't about know. It? I still haven't really dug deep into that thread yet. I really don't know. I have to double check. There's really a lot of awesome programmers for the twenty six hundred. Oh, yeah. By the way, there has been an update of the uh, that twenty six hundred version of Donkey Kong that we keep talking about. That's just so amazing. So, just want to throw that out there. So, if you have an older version. Uh, you might want to get the new one. Sure. But um, there are a lot of lot of really good people programming stuff for uh, the 2600 these days, and they're really pushing it to the limits. Oh, did you see somebody was... I think somebody just recently asked Ferg and said, do you think there is going to be a homebrew video game crash for the 2600 in the next year? I think you, I think somebody was asking that for, to Ferg. It could be wrong. I don't know about to Ferg, but there actually is a thread about it on Atari Twenty Six Hundred. That's probably what it was. And I think Ferg commented on it. That's what threw me he off. He may there. have. And uh, let me find the thread here. It started by Andrew Davy. The video game homebrew crash of twenty sixteen. Uh, by the way, Andrew Davy is another insanely, insanely talented programmer. He's done some really awesome stuff for the Twenty Six Hundred. Between him and uh, uh, Shampo and uh, Thomas Jentz, Jentz, oh yes, Jentz, yes, him too, and uh, at CPU is and uh, really, if you guys aren't on Atari Age and checking out their stuff, it's the only video game forum I'm on. Just the wealth of information and the wealth of new happenings and goings on and shenanigans. If I might, you have to go to Atari Age. Uh, it's just an amazing wealth of information for everything. Uh, not only on the Atari scene, but also they've got uh, forums for Just other classic consoles almost. all the way up to the uh, the Genesis. They actually have some modern console threads or oh, yeah. forums as well. So, I mean, it's it's it's, it's a it good one-stop really shop for video gaming. It, it, it has an arcade sub forum, too. Arcade and pinball. And classic. I mean, pretty much it, the focus is Atari, but they got stuff for everybody. And I, seriously, if you don't have an account there, go to Atari H. Uh, Hi, Albert. <laughs> Albert's a great guy. I've met him one time. I think you were with us when we met him. Yeah, that was at the Midwest Gaming Classic. Wasn't he sharing? Wasn't he sharing a room with Tempest? I or were they? Think just, so. They, yeah, I think they. I think they went halvesies on it. Tempest, Tempest is another yeah, great both, guy both over there. Nice guys. I'm glad to have met oh, yeah. them. Tempest is really awesome because he's like the uh, Atari prototype historian, and. Um, AtariProtos.com is an awesome website. It's a yes. great read if you haven't read it. Something so. I just want to backtrack onto the uh, uh, Atari 2600 home port of Ladybug by by, uh, yes. by Champ Games. I just absolutely... I, I mentioned this when we did our special episode on the uh, 2600 console when you asked me what I thought the best uh, arcade to home conversion was for it. And I said immediately, I said Ladybug. And I stick to that. It is really... In fact, something I've told people on Atari Age on more than one occasion, in fact, maybe even on Facebook too, is get the Atari 2600 home brew version of Ladybug. Play it in MAME and play it on the 2600 and try to tell me which one is which. That's how good you it know, is. There are, there are differences. I would have to say at this point, if you're talking about homebrew translations of arcade games... 
to me now it's a toss-up between ladybug and scramble i can totally see that but something that i really especially love and this is going and i've sung the praises of bob de crescenzo on the atari about this the atari 7800 homebrews he does both here and on my contributions to uh phil's podcast mm-hmm. ladybug is getting to bob de crescenzo label uh, levels in terms of just how anal retentively accurate it is because if you ever if you ever watch a ladybug machine boot up or if you watch the meme startup sequence of ladybug the very first thing you see is a blank an almost blank screen that just simply says ram okay rom okay that's what happens when you power up the atari 2600 ladybug it's like absolutely insane That's yeah, how good yeah. it is. And what was really cool, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I bought it, you could choose the color of the cartridge shell. And I chose oh, red. Nice. I think blue was an option, but they were out of it. But that's okay because I liked red better. You could choose, I think, between blue and red and what they called clear, but was actually colorless. Clear does not mean that it doesn't have a color. Clear means you can see through it. I remember when uh, Bob D. Crescenzo got me a uh, one of the early copies of the Pac-Man collection for the 7800 he sent it to me in a clear in a clear cartridge shell I remember shell, that uh, clear cartridge shell and uh, oh yeah, I, you know what my we could easily do one of those. we could easily do an episode of the show just based on the new arcade conversions that people are homebrewing for the 2600 yeah really uh, you, you could easily do that maybe we've talked about the Donkey Kong I brought up the new one scramble we're talking about Ladybug because that's the theme of this episode. Then there's the Donkey Kong one that we always talk about. Uh, there's a, a homebrew of Star Castle that's out there. Wasn't Star Castle what became Yar's Revenge? Yes. Uh, Howard Scott Warshaw at the time said that Star Castle was not doable on the 2600 at that time. So what he did was he just took all of the elements and created Yar's Revenge with it. And if you think about it, it really is the same game. It really uh, is. All of the elements are there. I got to play it a Galloping Ghost, and I was like, yeah, this really is Yar's Revenge in a way. It is. He just modified everything for the 2600, gave it a slap down a different name, and it's one of the best games for the system. Absolutely. Wow. So, but wow, we well, really we, went we off, got really off on a... But anyway, I don't know. I think we should leave that up to Ferg. Let Ferg take care of that. That's his, that's his uh, expertise. That's his baby. Yeah, <laughs> So... Usually, we that's, that's about it for the home ports. I don't think there yeah. were any other home ports for the game. I don't think I, so I can't either. think of any home ports for the PCs or or uh, the old 16-bit or 8-bit computers. Now, there are clones out there, like public domain clones. Like, there was a one called Bumblebee uh, that was on the BBC Micro, the Commodore 64, the Acorn Electron. I don't even know what the heck that damn thing is. Acorn Electron? I've heard of the Acorn, but not the Acorn Electron. Hmm. Oh, some other things that we should talk about, by the way. You said you saw this. Can you tell me more about when you first saw this uh, game in an arcade? I can't remember. <laughs> I know <laughs> well, I've seen it Well, that pretty much once. defeats the purpose of our show then. <laughs> I, I, I know I saw it once. But as I said, my most of my experience has been through the, uh, the ColecoVision port. Yeah, my experience has been through MAME and through the uh, Atari 2600 Homebrew. Because I I don't think I ever saw this out in the wild. I knew that it existed at the time. I absolutely knew about it. Do they have it at Galloping Ghost? No. In fact, that's what I was getting to. If you if you look up Ladybug on Orcade.com, it only shows two locations. No kidding. And they are they are pretty much the usual places what you would expect. Richie Knuckles and Fun Spot. Huh. Another reason to go to Richie Knuckles. 
but yeah, only two existing. And I never, I don't remember ever seeing an actual ladybug machine in an arcade or even at a grocery store for that matter. Yeah, I've seen it. I just couldn't tell you where. I mean, yeah, it was. I, I knew it existed at the time. I had heard of it. I, I would be able to recognize it if I saw it. And then, you know what, that, that brings up an interesting topic about uh, about the ColecoVision. Almost all of their their home arcade game ports were minor arcade games that nobody heard That's of. That's true, like, like Pepper, Space Panic. Pepper 2, yeah. Ladybug, Space Fury. Space Panic. Space Panic. I, I, I remember playing Space Panic. I can't couldn't tell you yeah, where again, but I remember, remember seeing Space that in Panic too, because he saw it in a catalog. He said, oh, they made Space Panic for the ColecoVision? I used to play that yeah. all the time, yeah. And, and uh, let me think, Victory, Cosmic Avenger. Now that I think about it, a lot of them are universal games, so they must have had a package home port deal. But they had, they had a few big games, obviously the Donkey Kong games and, and Zaxxon and Turbo. But yeah, it was all minor games like that. And that was really, really weird because Atari, I think, didn't have very many minor league games. I think the least well-known game, arcade game, that Atari put out for any of their systems was Space Dungeon. I mean, they had some of the minor hits, like Phoenix and Vanguard and uh, Pengo, but most of Atari's were bona fide hits, and of course, Atari had their own games that they could just, you know, pluck, you know, right from the vine, as it were. But the only real minor league arcade game Atari put out for their system was indeed Space Dungeon, and that was 5200 only. Which makes me wonder, what is the least well-known arcade game they put out on the 2600? Probably the early titles, like Air Sea Battle. That's true, because... Air Sea Battle and, uh, and Outlaw and all those were actually arcade games that went before they were 2600 games. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. They just thought they were early console titles. They never had a straight release of Pong, but that was part of Video Olympics. Oh, and that makes... Oh, I I should have put this in the Addenda and Errata segment, but oh well. Something When we, were t- when we did our 2600 special uh, episode... Uh-huh. Talked about the uh, that blog that had the altered uh, manual and video game boxes with the new titles and everything. Yes. And for Video Olympics, they renamed it Every Sport Ever in Pong Form. Pong Form. And the crazy thing is that the Sears Telegames release actually called it Pong Sports. Pong Sports. So it's not yes, too I different from that. the new, from the, from the um, vandalized version, I guess, for lack of a better term. Man, we keep going off on tangents about... On, we talked more about other games and other things during the Ladybugs. I mean, we've actually talked about Ladybug. So what is well, it? a lot of this stuff just flows. I mean, it really that's does, one thing but... I like about this show, because it's, it's conversational. We go off on these rabbit yeah. trails, which... With people that have ADD like I do, do this sort of thing all well, the time. I don't time. have ADD. I have M-I-N-U-S. So... But going on to this, uh, kind of taking things a little bit closer to, to the topic, uh, something we should yes, let's mention. let's talk more about Ladybug. So, something we should mention about Ladybug is that uh, the dip switches can be set to give you three lives or five lives. And here's something interesting. I, I meant to check this for, like, Mr. Do since we talked about that, but I didn't get a chance to check it yet. But... For Ladybug, you can have the high score programmed to accept three letters or ten letters, which is fascinating. I noticed that, actually, with Ladybug. I was playing it, and I was going to bring this up, actually. Uh, Whereas most games that have just a joystick that allow you to enter your initials, uh, you would select your initial, then you would hit, you know, a button, like, say, the one-player button to enter it in. In Ladybug... On your initial entry screen, 
it's really, really weird because you have to run your ladybug over the letter. You have to run it to the next letter and then run it over to the next letter and then run the ladybug all the way down to the end button. And they have it set up like a maze. And if you rest your ladybug on one of the letters for too it'll long, it'll, put, it'll, it'll repeat. And it's just the most bizarre score entry screen I've ever seen. It's like holding down a key on yeah. your keyboard. Uh, the really. only other arcade entry screen that I saw that was, I think was, was fairly bizarre, other than the shooting games, was Qbert. Because everything in that game is on a diagonal, but given the way the joystick was, that's understandable. Ladybug, it's, it's harder to enter your initial in that thing than it should be, I think. It took me a couple of times to figure out how to do it right. And I was like, oh, that's how you do it. And actually, this brings way to another uh, one problem with Ladybug that uh, that I've encountered. It's really sometimes sometimes I find myself like getting stuck on corners. Uh, unlike Pac-Man, where if you push the joystick one direction and let off, it'll keep traveling in that direction. With Ladybug, if you let off the joystick, it'll stop. I think that might have been an attempt to say, this is not Pac-Man, nothing to see here. <laughs> but it does make it, to me, somewhat hard to get around corners, I've I've found oh, in this yeah. game. They, yeah, you yeah you turn a corner, they will catch up to you. Yeah, uh, and, and it's not just that. I mean, you, will get, you can get stuck on the corners in this game. I don't think it happens enough to detract from the game. No. But when it happens, it gets frustrating. The other interesting thing about the settings of this game, for most games, you can set how generous you want to be. Like whether you want to have like one coin convert to one credit or two coins to convert to one credit. Yeah, and and all arcade games have some sort of a setting like that. Sometimes, and and many games have a free play setting, which means it's all you Mm -hmm. do is you press the start button. You don't even need to put a coin in. Now, I don't know if this is common and I just never noticed it before. When I was going through the settings in uh, Ladybug, I saw that there was a one coin, five credits option. No kidding. I know, like five games of Ladybug for just one quarter. And if you spell special, that's yet another one, you know? Wow. So maybe that's why you never see this game anywhere, because... Maybe arcade owners were just like, you know what? Let's be generous. Let's 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 allow people to just play five games on one credit. And they realize, <laughs> you know what? This isn't making any money. Let's send it back. That's just my theory, <laughs> and it's probably so absolutely correct. So that's exactly why Ladybug isn't all over the place nowadays. Shut up. Okay. <laughs> See, I'm glad you phrase. agree. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there there are the little the little idiosyncrasies, but I just thought that was, that's fascinating. You don't see that, the five credits for one token. That's just, that's weird because you do see different credit, you know, credits, uh, credits, what should we call it? You, you can get a different number of credits for a coin in every game, and some of them you'll go two coins for one credit, which sadly, at near the end of the, <laughs> the later part of the arcade experience, your very simple games were going 50 cents to play Pac-Man and stuff like that later on, which was really sad. Uh, I think I told you the very first time I played Donkey Kong 3, uh, yes. it was uh, <laughs> it was two credits for one, two tokens for one game. And that, of course, was that was in up Canada, in Canada, too, right? That was in which Canada. Which meant it was actually, it was worth even more money. Yeah. And I think I mentioned how uh, in Seaside Heights, New Jersey, w- w- before the fire happened and before Hurricane Sandy... There was a uh, vintage arcade. It was they only had a small handful of games, like maybe a dozen or so. There was called uh, Flashback, and they took absolutely zero care of those games at all. 
And what really did me in once was they went from 25 cents to 50 cents each. It's like, okay, it's one thing to double the cost to play. It's another thing when you're not even taking care of these games and you're raising the prices. I thank Hurricane Sandy and that terrible fire that happened at Seaside Heights for basically putting those games out of their misery. Uh, I'm sure some collector would have been able to take them and restore them, though. Especially with salty air getting at them, too. Yeah, still the cabinet. You could put uh, you could put a Raspberry Pi or something in there and and have your own MAME cabinet, which is still something I want to do. Oh, yeah, sure. So I still want to build myself a little kid tabletop MAME cabinet, but I am no woodworker. I actually had a listener to the show uh, say that he would build me a cabinet if I brought him the materials to do so. Oh, so we're just bringing the materials. How hard could that be? You have no idea. Does he live in like Turkey or Botswana? He lives in Shorewood, so he might as well be. Oh, God, that is pretty far. Yeah, that's all of 24,000 miles if you go the long way. Yeah, that is true. But um, anyway, so speaking of all these settings and stuff, um, Twin Galaxies and Orcade.com both adjudicate based on the... Adjudicate based on religion? Close. They're going to adjudicate based on the default dip switch settings, which would be three lives, medium difficulty. And arcade.com, highest score listed for Ladybug is by Ben Falls. Did I just say that with a New Jersey accent? Ben Falls. Ben Falls? Ben Falls. Well, okay, it makes sense that I did it in a New Jersey accent because he performed it at Richie Knuckles, which is in New Jersey. Um, October so Ben 30th. falls into Richie Knuckles? There you go. October 30th, 2010, with a score of 251,560 points. And I'm amazed he even got that far. This is not an easy game. Oh, hold on to your seat there, little Richard, because according to Twin Galaxies, a score verified September 15th, 2005, Dwayne Richard scored 1,081,370 how is that even possible? It's as possible as getting uh, double-digit millions on Revolution X without continuing. That's all I have to say about that. Okay, fair enough. I'll give you that. <laughs> you know? Wow, that's an insane score, because as I said before, this game gets hard. It really does, and I totally forgot to uh, write down my score. <laughs> Yeah, I did too. I think it was something like 12,000-something. Yeah, I'm probably in that same neighborhood. Yeah, because you don't want to know what my cheat score was. When I was cheating, it was like 125,000 what I got. But, I didn't uh, want to know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but I was cheating, so it doesn't count. But I, I was only playing to see what happened later on in the game. I'll sometimes turn the cheats on in MAME, just because I want to see what happens later on in the game, any sort of differences or whatever. You know, maybe it takes some of the reason to play the game away, but I'm not a very good player on a lot of these games, so yeah. I'm not... You know, it's it ain't nothing but a thang for me. But, uh, okay, you're not a good player, but you still enjoy playing games, so how many uh, continues do you rate your enjoyment of Ladybug? Well, despite the little glitch where with the uh, getting hung up on the corners and the weirdness of the initial select screen and the uh, how hard it is, I still say it's a very fun game and something you I think you really could get good at. Although not horribly, incredibly good. <laughs> Unless you're Dwayne Richard or Ben Falls. I would give it four. Really? Okay. Yeah, I had a hard yeah. time trying to come up with something. I don't think I would give this a five. I don't think I would rate this a five. No, the difficulty for me keeps it from being a five. I mean, for me, I think what did it for me was when I loaded up the game and played it, the graphics just looked a lot more primitive than they should have been. Yeah, I, I'll give you that. But I, I, 
again, you have to t- uh, take into account the time frame in which the game was manufactured, and then you also have to take into account the fact that it's a universal game, which pretty much all the screens, as I said before, on universal games really do look crowded, so that's just the way they well, did crowded things. crowded is one thing, but the thing is, the gra- there wasn't really much to it. I mean... You look at the no. game, it's like, it doesn't look graphically aesthetic. Mr. Do, on the other hand, it does. But Ladybug, it looks very first draft upon the, just the graphics. And I'm guessing it's because they were rushing to put out their own Pac-Man. They're like, okay, let's get our own Pac-Man light game together. All right, is it playable? Yeah, okay. Does, is, is it different enough that we won't be sued? Okay, let's hurry up, get that thing out now. So they probably yeah, just rushed I can through see that. it. I can see them doing that. I can see that, but I don't think that detracts from the enjoyment at all. It's its own little charm. Yeah, and the thing is, like, like many, many, many years ago, you and I had these so why do we like these old games conversation, and, you know, we were talking about how much better the graphics and sound are in new games, but we still like the old games better, and it's because of the playability, and the same thing here. It's still a very playable game. It really yeah. is. Even though it's obviously a, a highly influenced by Pac-Man, it has enough uniquities. I'm going to use that uh, That's your that, word. that word is your catchphrase. Mine is shut up. So it has enough uniquities to make the, keep the game interesting and keep you challenging yourself. So, you know what? If, if I may, the game is obviously influenced by Pac-Man, but it's also insanely original at the same time. Yeah, I can see that. And the thing is, like, I can't really say that if Pac-Man didn't exist, that Ladybug wouldn't have existed, because there were other Clear the Maze games before Pac-Man. Oh, indeed. I'm thinking like, There Sega's- was a version of, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but... Uh, Dodgem, a classic game on the Atari 2600, uh, which is kind of like Pac-Man. It was an arcade game before Pac-Man. Uh, in fact, you could say Pac-Man was a ripoff of that. Yeah, the game you're talking about was called Head On. Head On. Head On. Applied directly to the forehead. Yep. And I remember it was the ver- one of the very first vid- arcade games I ever played at the Kroger in Bourbon A. They had a twofer that had Head On 2 and a submarine game called Deep Scan. I played those a few times, so... So, yeah, this this theoretically could have existed without Pac-Man. Yeah, and I think it would have come about in some form or another. In fact, the uh, Universal did, um, I believe it was Universal, did another Pac-Man-like game involving doors called Mousetrap, which is one that we should should talk about at some time, which is one... Universal did Mousetrap? I believe it was Universal did Mousetrap. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think it was anyone else. Oh, it's Exidy. Exidy. Exidy did Mousetrap. Okay, that's right. But that was another arcade game, a Pac-Man type game with doors that once again had enough unique uh, uniquity, if I may, to keep the whole concept fresh. Although I think that one, that one was uh, had one big problem though, is there were four buttons on the console for oh, a yeah. Pac-Man type game. But um, we could cover that at some other time. Yeah, and that also came out in 1981 too, so it very well was riding the Pac-Man coattails. Indeed, it was. So yeah. Anyway, um, I would give. Yeah, you never late, did rate. I, I would probably have to agree with your uh, your four assessment on that. I'm going to give it a four as well for Ladybug. I think Ladybug is the definition of minor classic. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. And I'm glad I said it that way, just for that reason. Could you say it a different way for viral variety? Well, for minor classic. <laughs> Yes, I could do voices. So I have nothing further to contribute to our Ladybug discussion. Have you anything further to contribute? <laughs> like I had anything to contribute when we started recording. And that's showbiz. 
And I think at this point, we should talk about what we're going to talk about next time. And I'm pulling the... We should, after we talk about what the theme was. Oh, uh, yeah, we should do that. Why don't you give this one a stab? Oh, shoot. Because my I haven't sharpened my knife recently. Can I use a fork? The purple-shirted eye stabber. And that is the theme. There's a purple shirt... <laughs> Fine, okay, the theme was games in which you can alter the maze to some degree. Pengo, you alter the maze by moving ice blocks around. And in uh, Ladybug, you alter the maze by changing the directions of the turnstiles. And there you go. So why don't we talk about the games we're going to be talking about for next time? Hmm? Shall we? Because I don't know what games we're going to be talking about next time. That's why I don't. It's funny you mention that because I know what games we're going to be talking about next time because I have the spreadsheet right here in front of me. <laughs> You're right. That is funny. Yeah. That is funny. It's hilarious. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Tapper and Food Fight. Mm. Yes. Ah, those are good games. I enjoy those. There's a lot to say about both of those as well. And um, once again, uh, if you have any audio that you would like to submit or stories about your arcade memories, please send those in because we're going to do a special episode about that or maybe just work them in over the next several episodes because we got uh, a lot of things planned. But uh, we want to do a special episode with all of your arcade memories. So please get those into us. We're begging. We're on our knees. We're pleading with you. Please do this. So, But we can't plead too much because we're on a December 15th deadline for that. Yes, that is true. So yes, we, were gonna do, we will do these as a New Year's episode as we were just conferring during a cut that Hyde so expertly took out. And we'll do that right after the Tapper Foo Fight episode. And we got a whole slew of games ready to go for the new year. Oh, okay. So we're not we're not ending the podcast in 2015. Okay. Yeah. No. 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 We're gonna do like uh, we're gonna do like the old game show match game where every year they would just. Oh, pack. so we're gonna get drunk celebrities on board. Well, there's that, but we're also going to change the name of the podcast from the Pie Factory Podcast to the Pie Factory Podcast 16. You know, at the end of oh. at the end of match game, they always put like. Match game 76 or match game 77 or match game 78. Or the $25,000 Pie Factory podcast. And we are going to unearth the corpse of Charles Nelson Riley, especially for new, the new year. Oh, I so can't wait for that. That's yes. going to be awesome. And maybe we'll have him do his uh, the voice of the character he used to do on SpongeBob as well. So be yeah. looking out for that. Oh, and also something you can be on the lookout. Now, this isn't set in stone. But if you want to, you know, meet with us, hang out with us in person, we will be, at, or at least we're planning to be at Galloping Ghost Arcade in Brookfield, Illinois on December 12th. Uh, the, there is a special event that day. What is it? Developer's Day, I think. Developer's Day. And Eugene Jarvis is going to be there. He's like one of the, he's, he's, he's like a celebrity in the arcade realms. Eugene Jarvis oh, yes. is going to be there. We're going to try to nab him. And uh, and see if we can't uh, get a few words from him for the podcast. Yeah. And there we are. So, I guess uh, this is the end of episode 19 of Pie Factory Podcast. And, I uh, guess it is. Coming to you from Pie Factory Headquarters North in Chicago, Illinois. This is... Um, um, did I have a nickname for this for this episode or did I not? What, you don't remember? This is Forgetful <laughs> Sean. Ah, uh, the fun we have. I don't this remember am- if you did this or not. This is Amnesiac. This is Seanesia. There you Shawnesia. go. Seanesia. Ooh. And this is Jimmeria. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> From the Pie Factory Logistics Center in the far southwest suburbs of the Chicago area. Bidding you adieu. 
Gobble, gobble. We bid you peace. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L, composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Adenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goble. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via the Facebook page, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or the show notes page on piefactorypodcast.com. I have to say something here. Late in the summer, um, I was riding my bike down Clark Street in Wrigleyville on my way to get my hair cut, and there was a Cubs game going going on. And traffic by Wrigley was horrible. I mean, it was just atrocious. They had a traffic cop out there. And there was some idiot trying to rush the light to hurry up and make a left turn. And the guy was right next to me when I was on my bike. And the cop yelled at him and said, oh, real smart. And so I yelled at him, yeah, go back to Schaumburg. Uh-oh. I had to say that. <laughs> I know I've done it more than once. Well, you know why you weren't able to clear that base? Huh. Because all your base. Never mind. I saw the sign and it said stop playing that song. Okay. Yeah, uh, see Ace of so Base. All your, no, I didn't say all your Ace of Base. All your Ace of Base are belong to somebody. Thank sure. God. So yeah, it was a major downer. But uh but I do like penguins. Penguins are cute and cuddly. If I had a dollar for every time the phrase major downer was used in conjunction with Cleveland. Hey now, I like I I, <laughs> I, I, I do like Cleveland. I, I had actually never been to the city before. And no, we did not go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I do like Cleveland. It's a beautiful city. They got a national park like right there. And I'm not talking like a national monument or historic site, an actual national park. And uh on the west side of town, they've got this awesome uh, marketplace, which is just incredible. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like, you got to get me out of here. I'm falling in love with this city. <laughs> so, but um, said no one ever. Oh. Hey, now you're calling me a no one. <laughs> they yes, were giving away a, great, a trip to Cleveland at the Price is Right. Now that's something I can't see. As much as I like Cleveland, nobody <laughs> wants to go to Cleveland except for it's maybe probably because of Drew Carey, though. But um, that's true.